Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of Wake Up Call podcast. So we're here again with the panel today, and we're going to talk about the dreaded China um, that everyone hates today, apparently. Of course, as you know, the panel has very differing opinions when it comes to politics. So we're going to have a bit of a discussion about what each of us thinks of China in different spheres regarding human rights, politics, democracy, uh, economics, and also talk about its relation to the United States and how the world order is currently changing. So I invite, I suppose, Vishva and Archie to start off sort of with their opinion um, and with whatever, whatever topic they want to start about China. Yeah, um, I'm going to go first because I feel like it. Um, and uh, essentially, I think that the most important thing that we got to talk about when we're talking about China and as we continue this discussion is I think that unless we specify China means like the CCP and the Chinese regime, not anything else, not like the people of China or um, the country of China itself. It's really about the regime of China. And when we're talking about the regime of China, the first thing that you have to mention is their human rights record. And I just simply think that it's unconscionable that we are continuing to deal with this country, even though it's our adversary, and still doing business with them without having some sort of um, human rights uh, action that we're taking or accountability that we're taking just for the sake of, of cheap goods. Um, so I would like to hear what everyone else thinks of China's human rights record. Because a lot of people say that, oh, the West has terrible human rights records as well. And I don't know if I would agree with that. Well, just to kind of outline my stance before we get started, I would I would hazard a disclaimer and say that this, for me at least, is going to be a fairly high-level discussion in that I don't know too much in depth. But for me, when we talk about China, of course, we're talking about the CCP, we're talking about the government... And again, to me, that is sort of somewhat the issue in that we're talking about a country where the people, by and large, serve a political, economic, ideal, goal, five-year plan, whatever, uh, without much of a say in what that is, because the people who have the say are the people within the government, and they are so far detached and also so much smaller than the people themselves. And to me, that is the central difference between democratic countries and countries that kind of have this ideological regime, like China and if I maybe lay that out now as sort of my uh, beginning point, and then we'll see how that sort of expresses itself in the various topics that we're going to talk about. But uh, certainly human rights, uh, I agree with a lot of what Vishwa said, and so I'm not sure to begin the discussion, anything I would say is very useful if we could hear the other side. Yeah, uh, well, I guess I can start. I think that from the bat, we hear a very kind of big difference about how we talk, like the language that we use to talk about China. Um, we say Chinese regime, the CCP regime, uh, but regime is really not associated with any particular ideology. For some reason, it's just like a negative connotation put on China specifically. Uh, and we say U.S. government, <laughs> right? I do think like definitely uh, China goes overboard uh, with a lot of things like surveillance. Uh, the complete disrespect for freedom of speech. But I do think that in the West, there's a lot of juxtapositions that we can see. Um, you know, in the United States, 
they still spy on you. And not only they spy on you, but they sell your data to big billionaire companies. Uh, you're essentially the product. You know, the CIA, the CIA can spy on you through like turned off telephones and all of that. I see right now France also passed a law where they can spy on you through your telephone without your consent. So I do think that language matters, how we describe these two countries and also how much accountability we put on them in the same way. What about you, Danny? Yeah, Mildred, you bring up some really, some really interesting points here, especially about spyware um, and how that conjures into human rights. China, it, it's very hard to quantify if there's any sense of equality between the corporate espionage programs in the United States and China. They're both incredible. Uh, the difference is I think China has this meticulous way of espionage uh, in which they establish almost a ministry where they spy uh, on Western companies and try to learn from their innovations so they can try to replicate that. The Chinese are the kings and queens of replication and cheap manufacturing. And a lot of that comes down to cutting costs on R&D that's done by spying on your competition. So that's an interesting one. Um, but in terms of human rights, that's what we're coming to. Um, Okay, I sort of position myself as like a diplomat, I guess, in that sense, right? I try to see both sides to the information that I can get, as I don't really feel very attached, right, to certain places. Um, I've moved around all my life, so that, that's been a thing there. I think the West doesn't have a lot of grounds in trying to critique certain strategies in China. I'm not particularly fond of foreign countries attempting to really outrightly change what happens within China's domestic fear, just because when that happens in the United States, I bring up Guantanamo Bay as a massive example. Uh, China didn't step in there, and neither did the rest of the world. I think uh, the United States has a foreign policy, uh, an egregious foreign policy, where uh, it, must, it, has, it, it must change the system of another country and inspire the world to do so as well. China's under a lot of international scrutiny for human rights. I think what hap what's happening in uh, uh, was it Xinjiang, yeah, Xinjiang. Xinjiang right? Yeah. The province, Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs. I think that's horrendous. I was reading about it, and the numbers of people that they have locked up in these camps is absolutely it's unfathomable. Um, so on that, side, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say China is a peaceful country and whatsoever. They drew nine dashes on a map and made it their standard for international recognition in the South China Sea. It's stupid. Um, so I'm interested because I, I just don't think we can say China's all bad. That, that's what I'll say. That's what I'll end with. I think, I think what I would appreciate if Western diplomats also understood where they sometimes were being overly judgmental in that sense, because China has their one way. But I think the West really doesn't have a lot. To, I'm interested, Vishwa, to hear your claim because you actually said you would deface that yeah, argument. I mean, I think that um, the central question that we're going to be having within this whole conversation is China an adversary? Is China a force for bad in the world or is China fine? I, I, I think that both of you, if I'm, if I'm correct, aren't going to be arguing that China is a force for good in the world. But you're arguing that China is basically not any different than any of the current hegemons. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. I differ a little bit. I mean, I, I wouldn't... China's not... It's, it's not just like other hegemons. I want to be very clear. China has... It's, it's very different. They follow an entirely different value and belief system based on Confucianism. 
no Western country bases their foreign policy and rhetoric on Confucianism as an ideology. Right. So I think that they're different in that sense. Um, but we can elaborate on that later. Before we kind of carry on with that, uh, Mill, you said words matter, and I think they do, of course. Uh, so regime, um, according to Google, at least, I think that's a, that's a fairly neutral source. Um, a government, especially an authoritarian one, I think that, that fits China pretty well. Um, or definition number two, a system or ordered way of doing things. I'd say they're definitely slightly more ordered um, than the rest of the kind of large governments in the world. So I think regime is fine, um, as far as I'm concerned. And I think I think that definition definitely fits the, the Chinese government pretty well. But one thing I would add here is if kind of what we're arguing over is whether China is uniquely bad given the, what the West is doing, I think one difference that is important to bring up is that if you take companies that are sort of companies, if you take countries that are kind of political experiments, um, the US being kind of the first one in that it wasn't organic, people got together, wrote down a list of ideals, uh, political ideals, and said, let's govern according to this. It was sort of an experiment the first time it had been done. And again, China had kind of come together and been, at least modern China had come together and been governed according to a set of ideals that were written down. Um, at the time, kind of communist ideals, I'm not going to get into the definition of that because someone will skewer me. But that's where they're similar. But what is different is that, yes, okay, maybe they're doing different things, but at least the West's sort of stated goals are slightly more liberal, slightly more accepting, at least in this day and age, of different ways of doing things, whereas the government in China has written down this list of ideals with a very kind of abject sense of production, improvement, might, etc., as a goal. Whereas, and and that's quite restricting, right? Whereas in the US, say, liberty is sort of the main goal, and whatever comes from that isn't as well defined. And so I think the main difference there is, yes, you have authoritarianism on both sides. I'm not arguing that China is uniquely authoritarian. However what they're being authoritarian about is markedly different. And I think that's an important point to bring up. Agreed. And I, I, I'd just like to extend that and, and go into a discussion about the, the sort of surveillance thing. And I just think that, like, yeah, sure, the CIA occasionally wiretaps uh, civilians' phones. And we all know the stuff that Edward Snowden leaked. And we all know the stuff that Julian Assange leaked about the Iraq war and things like that. No, I I agree with that and I'm I'm personally very critical. I did a whole rant on why Julian Assange and Edward Snowden are basically heroes very early in the wake up call days for our early listeners. But here's the but, Archie, that you that you sense coming. That is a different world compared to what China does. There's entire websites, Facebook, Google are all completely blocked in China. If they have they have this search engine called Baidu, which is the, the Chinese Google. They use it for everything. The CCP agents are, like, directly monitoring these messages. Like, people will send a WeChat message to someone critical of the government, and then the police knock on their door a couple hours later. They arrest them. I, there was this crazy video I saw once of this man being sort of interrogated and, and being forced to, like, apologize publicly in front of his family and friends for criticizing the CCP's... Uh, COVID, COVID zero policy or something crazy like that. I think it's fair to say that, look, the U.S. has authoritarianism too. Like Archie said, the U.S. has a massive surveillance state and we can oppose those things 
while recognizing that these scales are just in completely different orders of magnitude. There's a difference between being blo blocked from entire sections of the internet that the rest of the world uses and having your messages like scanned by agents and being thrown in jail for criticizing government policy and, you know, the occasional wiretap. Both are bad. I would say scale and the stated goals that that authoritarian right, exactly. is in service of. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see both of your points. Um, I do think that for us Westerners who, I mean, most of us for the majority of our lives have only li lived in Western liberal democracies with ideas of free market, individualism, Facebook, Google, <laughs> Instagram, I don't know, being like the beacons of freedom and self-expression. We judge China on these terms and democracy experts in the West judge China on these terms, but China never claimed to be a liberal democracy. And as Danny said, it bases its pol politics on completely different things. I think that that's why for us countries that really, really kind of propose this individualism and self-expression and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, it's really hard to understand China that promotes... Milda, are we not allowed to make normative statements that those things are good things? That you should be allowed to do what you want? Like, I understand that people have different values than I do, but, like, I think that sometimes my values are just better. If someone else's value... Yeah, I, I... yeah go ahead, Archie. You're going to express this perfectly. I'm not sure you can go... I, I'm doing a bad thing, but I said I was going to do a bad thing, so you can't judge me for it. It's like, yeah, okay... They stated their goals and they 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 worked them out. Uh, no, but I didn't finish my point. Like, <laughs> fair, okay, no fair. Sorry. Is... Like, I, <laughs> like China also has priorities like collective benefits and like they have huge poverty allevi alleviation programs. They have a national congress every five years to identify the biggest issues in their country and do everything to solve them. Um, they're leaders in climate policy. They're the biggest investors in renewable energy. They have lifted so many million people uh, out of poverty. I mean, of course, we can compare the two countries and we can compare their values. And I'm not defending that China's surveillance is good in any way. I oppose it. But I'm just saying that our values... You know, we have been indoctrinated to believe that they're good values. And we can also see that other values can be good, um, even if they're done under a different regime. And also, secondly, about that language point, if you go to a political science class in, like, university, I'm not sure that they will associate regime with authoritarianism. But that's besides the point. And second of all, like Danny mentioned, Guantanamo Bay, you know, in China, we always mention concentration camps and labor camps. In the United States, we just call them prisons. Um, but there is actual slave labor there. I mean, they're different. They're 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 different things, Melda. People are there for entirely different reasons. One's, you know, breaking a fairly well agreed upon criminal code. The other's just kind of being born. Right. We. I mean, we can say that both things are wrong. I mean, we can oppose Guantanamo Bay's torture and stuff like that, and say it's inhumane and in violation of. But not for the same for. reasons. But exactly, not for the same reasons. There's a difference between one million Muslims being detained because they're Muslims, and China perceives their religion and culture as a threat to their security, just for existing, and people that are like terrorists that are killing soldiers 
being locked up in the same. No, camps. of course, but like I think that terrorists and violent people also exist in China, and then in the United States, people prisoners who do slave labor also were put in there for like possession of marijuana or stealing some food, which is also unjust, I think. If I may bring up a point here, I'm interested because we talk. There's now I heard、uh, Milda and. Vishwa talking about values and you know whether I, Western values are, into your opinion, good, right? Like there are values we should aspire to. We should make normative statements.、Uh, and Milda talks about how values are different. I want to draw a line in between there,、uh, and talking a little bit about maybe the history of China. It's very brief. I'm not going to go way back. I'm literally going to go back to the 1990s.、Uh, Deng Xiaoping was the leader of the Chinese Communist Party at the time, and I have a feeling you guys know him. I don't know if、uh, the listeners. Are completely aware, but he's a very famous figure in China, and he was the one who brought, and who I, I should say more liberalized the Chinese economy and political spectrum. He westernized China to a degree that Chinese leaders had never seen before, and right now a Xi Jinping China cannot be compared to.、Um, and I think it's really interesting to see that Deng Xiaoping actually brought a lot of that poverty alleviation that Milda talks about, and programs in which China still today greatly approves from. I think for me. The, where I where I draw question marks is with Xi Jinping, a, a leader, right? A leader of a country. I think that's always important, rather than call the whole government scammy or or say they're all、uh, responsible for that. Because as we've discussed, the United States also has questionable parts, and I don't blame every person working in the diplomat service for certain decisions made in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. It's not worth it.、Um, but I do think that. China has benefited so much in from the liberal institutions it's been a part of. So for me, on the human rights side, same with the U.S., I make the same criticism. For me, my opinion is that it's sad to see us make agreements about what is good and what values are to be accepted, and then to break them. That's when I bring in the South China Sea example again, and the what happens in Xinjiang has nothing, in, in my opinion, and from what I've seen. It has no purview with national prisons in the United States. U.S. prisons being a business is a whole other topic, and it'll take us a long time to discuss that.、Um, but here, I mean, these guys are locking up people just because, as Vishal beautifully put, they were just born the way they were. The Chinese said, "No,、nah, no, they they're not Wan Chinese, and、uh, that's dangerous for us." The way China conquered West from the central part of China—I don't know if you guys know a lot about the geography there. That was detrimental. That was almost how the U.S. did it,、uh, it going into the west of their country. So, and, in, and I mean, in the eighties and nineties, the, the we weren't talking about Xinjiang. We were talking about the Tibetan genocide and the、yeah. Tibetan annexation. And it's not it's not like the first time that China has done something like this. They killed off the Tibetan culture.、Yeah. Tibetan religious figures like the Dalai Lama are in、yeah. exile. No, completely. I think that's so interesting. China's had a, a history episode from the. We haven't even gotten to the Cultural Revolution. We we haven't even gotten there. Though that was a, something uncanny.、Um, but just to wrap up my point real quick, I think it's very interesting to see how our belief belief system conflicts with that as Westerners and what we value. Because when you talk to Chinese people, and I I would say now I've talked to to quite a few about what life is like in China, I would say very few of them, for whatever reason, and I'm open to scrutiny on this. Would actually say that China is an oppressive country. You know that that's not something that's felt in China,、uh, especially among Wan Chinese people living in cities like Beijing, Guangzhou, Shanghai,、uh, and other big Chinese metropolises.
So I'm interested to see how that sort of conflicts with the Western mindset. I mean, at the end of the day, like Milton puts, it's been a media thing, our perception of China. Have any of us been to China? I have. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. What city, Vishwa? I spent a summer in, in Shanghai, um, and I traveled around quite a bit. Um, I was actually just about to, to bring that up. And um, I was going to say, it's, I mean, it's very anecdotal, which is why I was somewhat hesitant to bring it up, is that... China is a gorgeous, beautiful, incredible country. One of the most favorite places I've ever traveled. Yet you somehow got the feeling like while you were there, like you got the vibe that this was not a free country. Out of interest, how old were you when you were there? I was about 13. So definitely old enough to, to have very vivid memory. And yeah, it was, it was a great time. I really enjoyed my time in China. One thing worth mentioning is that I, I don't think you need to have been to China, lived in China, in order to look at what China is doing, at least to the greatest extent that we can perceive what they're doing, and judge it against a certain set of values, whatever they may be, right? It's like if you look at a policy and assess whether that's, I don't know, maybe you're looking at to what extent it's a liberal policy, to what extent it's authoritarian, whatever. You can look at it, assess whatever metric you're assessing, and then and then compare that to the values that you, you think are good or bad, etc. So I'm, I'm not sure this kind of well, if you speak to Chinese people, if you go to China, this, that, I've spoken to plenty of Chinese people who think it's an oppressive authoritarian regime and they left for good reason. I've also spoken to people who don't think that. But I'm not sure this kind of anecdotal, I've been, I haven't, I spoke to this person, I spoke to that person, is particularly helpful when we're assessing, you know, whatever. Essentially, you are able to assess whatever we're trying to assess here without having been. I think that's fair enough to say, right? Because if that's not true, then why have any discussion at all? Okay, I want to I wanna pivot the discussion uh, here a bit and talk a little bit more about China's role in the global economy. So for years, China was the West's manufacturer. We sent stuff to China. They give us very cheap labor. They send it back. We sell it. We have cheap stuff. Um, and the West sort of did that without asking any questions, and that's part of the reason why there was such a decadent era within the West where we, you know, we kind of turned the other shoulder to China. You know, Tiananmen Square happened. No one in the West particularly cared. We all sort of, you know, when asked, politicians sort of say, oh, I think China's oppressive. I think China's evil. But no one's going to do anything about it. But recently, the tide has shifted. China's aggression in the South China Sea, China, China's locking up of a million Uyghurs is like, has caused a lot of people, myself included, to sort of re-examine our relationship with China and other authoritarian countries. Um, recently, Janet Yellen and Krista Freeland, Canadian and American sort of foreign ministers, they started talking about the idea of moving away from China and friendshoring, where, whereas offshoring would be just sending stuff to wherever it's cheapest. Friendshoring would be doing that with the constraint of making sure that it's allied regimes and sort of creating a new um, axis of power. So in terms of that, our continuing economic links in, with China, I would, I'm curious to hear what everyone thinks about um, potentially moving off of that, the consequences of that, and whether that's something that we should even consider doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, I can begin, I guess. I think in a world which is you know, faced with so many issues that are multilateral, that face you know, all of the global citizens, like climate change, we need cooperation. And I think 
isolating ourselves even more, especially as, you know, two global superpowers would just raise tensions and um, reduce the likelihood of, of, of us solving issues. I mean, I think these two countries trade a lot. It helps them and it helps their citizens. And yeah, I think kind of isolating ourselves only makes us more divided, more suspicious, more hostile to each other. And also, I don't understand why, you know, we should cut off China, but then not Saudi Arabia, Hungary, Turkey, with also horrible human rights abuses. If I'm allowed to jump in there, uh, I'd say, well, we should cut off Saudi Arabia to the extent that we, we can. Uh, we should cut off Hungary. We should, you know, if you've got a disagreement with something, do something about it. Of course, there's economic necessity. Um, you know, like you say, China became the world's manufacturer. The scale that exists in China that just doesn't exist anywhere else and the infrastructure that has arisen from that scale, the West has grown to accept and we are now at a point where living without that is not particularly possible. I mean, if you, even if you just look at China lockdown's sensitivity to global oil prices, right? That's a concrete example that we, we can't live without it. But I think to the extent that there is wiggle room with how much we interact with China... If that is something we can use in order to enforce uh, our opinions, and I'm not saying the West's opinions is kind of one monolithic thing, but, but individual countries, individual democracies, if that is something we can use to enforce our opinions about China's behavior, then why not? Because, you know, if, if, we, if we don't do that for this kind of abstract notion of, you know, globalizing and not isolating ourselves, well, then is that not as good as an endorsement for whatever China's doing, right? It's like... Okay, if you do whatever you want and we won't change a thing about how we interact with you, then go right ahead. For me, that is as good as saying go right ahead. And of course, we're never going to wean ourselves off China. They are an important and huge part of the global economy. However, if we have economic tools at our disposal in order to punish or encourage a nation and we have a moral disagreement with them particularly with something as grave as, as the concentration cha uh, camps in Xinjiang province, then I think we have a moral obligation to use those tools, right? So, yes, globalism, globalization has brought many, many, many benefits to people around the world, but I also think that just allowing things to happen in service of some abstract notion, personally, I don't think that's okay. In almost complete agreement um, with Archie here, I think that what we've forgotten again. This is my this is my Mark Carney inspired uh, diatribe that I'm about to go on. But I read this book called Values by Mark Carney, basically, which is an advocacy for yes, free markets, but also money does not dictate everything. Money and value should not become synonymous like they have nowadays. And I think that an important part of like building a better world is ensuring that even though something is cheaper, we choose to actually buy things that support our values. And we, and we talk to, you know, businesses that do business in, that, you know, the conductor operations in authoritarian countries. And we sort of tell them like, look, this is not cool and we're not going to buy from you. And if that's government sort of investment stuff, if that's incentives to work with other countries, I don't I don't know what the best way to do it is, but I think it's important that we start to not only talk with um, our mouths, 
but also with our dollars and our investments and where we're doing business. And we saw that we're fully capable of doing this. We saw how quickly Western corporations moved out of Russia once Russia invaded Ukraine. This was both in response to sanctions, but it was also in response to consumer pressure. So it's possible. Of course, China is much more intertwined within our economy than Russia ever was and ever will be. But what I'm saying is it is possible to wean off of China and we should do it. It's interesting here because China will inevitably pursue a strategy of strategic autonomy like Europe in comparison to trying to balance the U.S. This is something we learn in political science. And the theory here is that in the production sector, as you said, China is the world's manufacturer. And that's true. Uh, I don't know if this is a top number or something I'm making up, but I read it in an academic paper. And I think around 95 percent of the world's cranes reside within China. I have the number that they make 341 million exporting those cranes, but it just shows you the scale of what China's trying to do. And in terms of where does this put the West in our moral obligation, I'm midway as normal. <laughs> I don't, I, for, I'm completely in agreement with Archie. We need to cut off Saudi Arabia yesterday. Like, I, I don't know what the United States, well, I know what the United States is doing in Saudi Arabia's pockets. Um, but for, I, I, I can't stand that. I cannot see a country like that work with the United States, with the U.S., to make a lot of statements saying, oh, no, China, no good, no good. And then you work with Saudi. Not, let's not forget that China just brokered uh, the diplomatic deal of the century between Iran and Saudi Arabia for them to establish diplomatic ties. China's making moves in places the U.S. is not. Um, but to bring this down to what... I think should happen in terms of the business sector is that it, this will only, again, like in Russia, like Vishwa pointed out, this will only happen with consumer pressure. So if the consumer says, I don't want to buy from China for X, Y, Z reason, they're going to do it. But yet, in what I've learned from uh, some, what I've learned from business professionals is that their goal is profit maximization. I'm not, I'm, wait, I know these are terms of like a, pseudo-Marxists coming up and saying, oh, down to all the capitalists. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just trying to say that the goal of a corporation, despite do-good policy, is to make profit. And for China, the fruition of cheap labor and cheap exports and easy access to materials, China's Belt and Road Initiative assured of that, it created a, a, it's like a candy, like a candy store. For global businesses, they can come in. They're accessing a market with 1.3 something billion people, a single market with that many people. It's uncanny. I will say that it needs to change. I think the West needs to develop its own strategic autonomy, like Apple, for example. I don't like Donald Trump at all. The one good thing I've ever heard him say was talking to Tim Cook, and he said, bring iPhone production back to the US. He said it in a very Donald Trump way, but he said it. And I think that was interesting because a lot of companies don't want to do it because the costs are just too high. But I think that if consumer pressure is high enough, I would be more than happy if we reduced our reliance on China and gave ourselves some leeway there. At the end of the day, if China decides we're going to do something extreme in Taiwan, it puts our supply chains at jeopardy. I think I have two things to say here. First of all, about the value side and how, you know, I've lost faith that we can prioritize our values above profit, um, unfortunately. And I think especially from the consumer side, most people cannot afford anything. 
most people don't live like us or, you know, I think we're students, we also struggle, but most people really cannot afford to make value judgments on their purchases. They barely get by. And secondly, I think that's the thing about the United States, you know, it loves to sort of whenever they're, for example, giving foreign investment to Africa, they love to put some sort of uh, value based uh, ideals on those countries with their economic principles like free market, uh, austerity measures, structural adjustment programs, which can also harm those countries and have done that. Um, and then the actual normative side, like Apple's, I believe, like bottom chain where they get their metals, like uranium for their iPhones in Africa, where people work like slaves, that kind of gets forgotten as well. So I'm hesitant about how we can, in a capitalist system, actually put normative claims first. Uh, I think I've got a point to make there, and I agree. You know, it's it's difficult. If you don't have the money to spend, then you don't have the money to spend to, to make value judgments with what you're spending it on, particularly from the consumer side. You know, a, a thirsty beggar can't be a mineral water critic. It's just not within their remit. Um, I saw that one from Succession. It's a great line. Um, but I think, particularly among those who, who can at least to the extent that they can, it's precisely that attitude that allows these regimes to flourish. It's like, well, it's more expensive for me to do X, therefore I won't do it. But if X prevents someone from doing a bad thing, then yes, pay the... I think, if, I don't know, maybe you could term it like a moral premium on something. Like, I think if you disagree with something and you're not willing to pay the moral premium if you can afford it, then do you really disagree with it? Or is it all just waffle? Are you just saying it in order to appear, you know, moral and 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 like a do-gooder in the world, right? It's exactly what you brought up, Danny. With, um, you know, if the U.S. is is condemning these authoritarian regimes, but but willing to engage with Saudi Arabia, well, we all see the hypocrisy there, and I think hypocrisy exists with people who are refusing to change their behaviors despite the fact that they supposedly disagree with something. Precisely, I I seriously think that we're at a moment in history right now where we have the choice to continue dealing with these countries or move on. And whatever we choose, in 50 years, we're going to be judged upon it. When China is sending a million of its citizens, of its minority citizens, to concentration camps simply by virtue of their culture, this is something that we can't simply just stand by as consumers that have our wallets and 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 condone we just can't we just can't accept this and i think that the longer that sort of westerners have this attitude that we're, they're going to buy the cheapest thing and not make value judgments the longer that we empower a, a, a basically an evil regime to to stay in existence um those are my final thoughts and i'd like to allow everyone to give their final thoughts before we 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 wrap this up yeah uh, I wanted to say about kind of the West's accountability and how they really don't give any Fs at the end of the day. Like, to this day, imperialist powers, most of them have not even said, I'm sorry for the horrible crimes that they have done to people in the global South. And also, the United States is sanctioning Cuba, like Cuban citizens, 
it's put a whole trade war on Cuba, not even their government, which I know can do bad things, but, you know, people who don't deserve anything, they also do these atrocities, which I'm not making any value statement that they're worse or better than China's ones. But I'm just saying that, like, really, I have no preference um, almost in this horrible, horrible world. I, <laughs> I, I, I agree with you, Milda. Uh, to be honest, we've all brought up such great points today. I think the variety of perspectives. I think from a Westerner's playbook, I think we did a pretty decent job tackling this behemoth. All I'll end with, um, and it's because there was one time that my father, he loves Ali, AliExpress. And who doesn't? At the end of the day, stuff is like less than $10. You can go buy whatever. And he told me, son, listen, you go to Western stores, you pay the premium price for the same product built in the same factory. My final thought is that if we need change, yes, buy, like, speak with your dollar, but countries need to make a bigger effort to change the status quo. Um, and secondly, and lastly, like Russia, we have to deal with China. Politically, I'm talking about. China is going to be a forecoming force with the United States. China has a U.S. foreign policy strategy. The United States does not have one single coherent strategy for China. That's what scares me. But that's about it. And I end on that beautiful, optimistic approach. Yeah, I'd say I agree with what, a lot of what Danny's just said. Um, if you can, speak with your dollars, but everyone, governments need to get involved and actually step up. Um, but I think stepping up is, part of that is having the courage to say that we can make value judgments about Chinese behavior in the same way that we did about Russia, and then we must do that. And consumers must do that, and governments must do that, and it's not enough to say that... We live by liberal standards and they don't, so what they're doing is fine. That's not okay. And we can't allow that to continue. Archie, Danny, Melda, excellent discussion. Um, and for all of you that are listening, I'd love for you to weigh in uh, on our Instagram. Send us those angry DMs um, or whatever. You know what our Instagram is, at Wake Up Call Podcast. And that wraps up episode 27. Thank you, everyone, for the great discussion.